Welcome back to the Behind the Well Show. Roger Abe with Elias Randall. Elias, we're kicking off our 2023 in dramatic fashion after 2022. And I think what caught my eye the most is uh, Bloomberg every year puts out their their uh, their 2023 outlook just came out. And it's called Here's Almost Everything Wall Street, Street Expects in 2023. But here's what I thought would be great. Let's go back before we discuss 2023 and see what they thought would happen in 2022. Because as most people remember, 2022 turned out to be one of the worst years on record. And in fact, 2022, Elias, turns out to be the seventh worst return for the stock market on record. And when I, when I refer to the stock market, I'm obviously talking about the S&P 500. It was down 181 for the year, and it's been called the Great Inflation, which has dominated headlines for the whole year. But as we think back to what we went into 2022 with, most economists, predictors, financial weathermen, analysts really thought 2022 would probably be a fairly good year because going into 2022, the word was still inflation may be transitory. And that turned from transitory to, you know, really entrenched in our economy. And we saw some massive inflation. We did. And I do remember last year, or at least getting ready to head into last year, that I think a lot of the end of the year price tar targets were fairly bullish. I would say most there, there certainly probably was people who were more bearish, but I know at the end of 2021, like you were saying, when inflation was thought to be transitory, uh, people were still pretty bullish on the market. And then, um, you know, it seems like it's, it seems like expectation is getting more bearish now. So it'd be interesting to see. And I, th I think it's maybe good that we're not in the, uh, prediction business. Cause I, Every time you read these predictions and then you go through the year, you just see how many are incorrect. It's nearly impossible to predict the future and predict what's going to happen. And then along with that, what like overall investor sentiment? I mean, could could the Federal Reserve raise interest rates this year and it not been as bad on the market? That could have happened too. It didn't, but it could have happened. So it's just interesting to see how, you know, all these experts – I think a good parallel you can draw is to sports, right? If you watch enough ESPN or what's the what's the sun the Sunday morning football shows, those guys arguably know more about football than anyone. It's former coaches and players. And then you look at their record on the season for predicting games and they're always like five hundred. Yeah. It's a flip of a coin. They don't know who's gonna win or play good or what's gonna happen. And it's similar in the stock market. No one no one actually knows. I mean, you can make good, like, educated decisions today based on what may happen, but no one knows exactly what will happen. No, and I, I think that's really what we want to ingrain into people is it's not trying to predict. It's just preparing and having a plan for when bad things happen. That's why we always subscribe to the idea of a financial plan. We're preparing for the unexpected. And I think one of the things that we don't talk about much, um, Elias, when we talk about financial plans is actually what we're doing. What we're doing is we're, we're testing that financial plan for times of chaos like we had in 2022. We, 
And I'm going to argue that I don't think we've ever seen anything like 2022 again. Or I mean, we've never seen that in the past ever. And here's why. The bond market had its absolute worst year on record. Just the uh, Barclays uh, aggregate bond index was down 16% for the year. Right. And that's something I thought about a lot this last year. So if we had a year where, okay, 2022 overall market down 18%. If we had a year for like, if you think about a 60, 40 investor, a lot of people do that. Well, what if this year bonds weren't down in value and you're just getting the yield off of them and that's 40% of your portfolio, the market being down wouldn't be nearly as painful. The, but it's, port- it's painful this year because there's no, well, there's nothing in your portfolio that's up. I mean, maybe certain things. Are, so, so let's just use that as a prime example. We'll set some assumptions. The stock market goes down 20%. That's 60% of your portfolio. So yeah. if you had 60% exposure, you should lose on average around 12. Could be a little more, could be a little less, depending upon how you have this allocated. Right. If the bonds prices just stayed the same, you're still down 12 percent. But now you're getting a four percent yield in your bond. So add. Four percent of 40, that's one point six percent. Right. Yep. So you really you're down like 10 percent. That's significantly different. The average 60, 40 portfolio this year was down six, 16.1. The worst return for a bond for the Bloomberg aggregate bond index, which goes back to 1976, the worst return was minus 2.9%. The worst, we were down 16.1% this year. So yeah, so 2022 historic year. So what were, okay, so what are some of the things that were expected to happen in 2022 and either did happen or did not? Well, I, in, and I'm looking just, I went through and I've tried to find things that stood out to me. And was there anything that could have actually, you know, prepared people for what was going to happen? And one of the things that actually caught my eye, and I think they weren't predicting, but they were kind of, I guess, sharing their insight of what they thought would happen. But a Monday asset management actually in this, in this uh, report came out and said, beware of the nominal illusion by targeting real returns. The 60-40 portfolio model will be challenged. That was from a Monday? A Monday. That actually, I got goosebumps when I talk about it because they were right on. They they didn't predict a stock market collapse. They didn't predict a massive loss in the bond market. But what they did say is this could be challenged. So instead of trying to make a, a drastic prediction, which they were right on, I, I think that is just, really good insight from a Monday asset management on what they thought would happen regarding, and that was regarding inflation. And yeah. I know going into last year, most of the price targets were positive on the S and P 500. I think very few people, you know, were expecting a minus 18% on the S and P. Uh, I would agree with that. I think the con- I think consensus on price end of year, 2022 price targets was positive for most big institutions. Um, the other thing I'd, I want to say about, so a Monday's comment about how the 60, 40 portfolio could be challenged. Think about how it's kind of interesting to think about 2021 and 2022, just the 24 month 
period of those two years, how easy investing was in 2021. And then we enter into 2022 and all of a sudden investing is hard again. You have to make good decisions. You can't just be a part of a thread on Reddit and find some decent stock tip and it goes up. So it's, but right. I feel like that would be expected that over time, good investor behavior, owning a diversified portfolio of quality companies and quality bonds, in my opinion, like those things are going to over time are going to work out better than the environment we had in 2021. And we may never have something like that again. Um, it'll be interesting to see. It's just, to me, it's just kind of funny how the last, certainly the last two years back to back, like 2021 and 2022 couldn't be any different as far as the investing landscape. What else I think is really interesting is, you know, for a long time, we heard the saying cash is trash. Last year, cash was king. Yeah. I mean, that was one of the only places you could have hit out and done well. So I went back to this Bloomberg article and I just pulled what the, what the price target was for JP Morgan 2022. This is how bearish we were for last year. JP Morgan's 2022 price target for the S&P 500 was 5050. For end of end of year it was 5050. We ended we're around 3900. Yeah, we're way off that. So, Elias, here's what's interestingly enough in this report from Bloomberg. Nobody has a published price target in here. They didn't put one. I know companies have put them out, but there's not one in that. I don't see one in this article of any published price targets. But, you know, the price targets we've seen are fairly low. Some people have a negative negative price target yes. on the S&P 500. And here's what's interesting about that. There's only a few times ever, I think it's four, we can go back and double check four times in this nation's history where we, we've had back-to-back negative years. It could potentially happen. So if someone's predicting year. a negative price target, they're actually predicting an event that's not that likely to happen. Correct. And I, to me, so the most, I think the highest price target I've seen so far, and it doesn't mean there someone's put out one higher, I think is 4,500 on the S&P 500. So that's not even getting back to, so even as of my knowledge, even the most bullish people are still not getting us back to the all-time high. That doesn't mean, there, there could be one out there. I just haven't seen it or come across it yet. Um, yeah, that'd be, so if we have another negative year, um, I don't know, how do you think that'll impact investors i feel like i guess my general feeling on this at least the people we work with and sentiment is kind of and the thing i've been if you've stuck it out like to this point i think people are going to hang in there and and stick it out but we'll see i'm i guess if it gets bad enough there a lot of people might give up they might get out i feel like people actually have handled this market really well i agree with that i think especially if you think about why most people would own a 60-40 portfolio or have 50% bonds in their portfolio, in a point in time, so going into 2022, that 40% allocation of bonds in a portfolio wasn't there to generate yield because there was not much yield. Interest rates are very, very low. 
they were owning that for safety. So you took this, you know, segment of clients who are buying bonds because they saw them as safe and they almost lost as much as equities. And I think the fact that we're not seeing investors panic when their safe investment went down 16% if they had a 60-40 portfolio, I think that's a testament to the overall fortitude of investors. I think, though, as this market, if it grinds lower and we have another negative year, I think we're going to start to see people give up. And when people give up, that's capitulation. And that's probably about the time that this is going to start to turn around. I, I know personally, I work, we work with a lot of clients. I don't have anybody wanting to give up. And I, I really spent time thinking about this. And why is that? And, you know, I look at these charts of what the markets have done. I think people are getting desensitized to these large swings in the market, number one. If you go back and look at this chart in the last uh, 10 years, we've had four of the worst markets. Or the last 20 years, excuse me, we've had four of the worst markets. So, yeah, there should be like a little bit of being callous to it at this point. Or desensitized, whatever you want to say. So I think that's one. But I think the other part of that is and why people aren't reacting quite as negatively is at the same time there's their access to information about how markets work is vastly different and what i mean by that is somebody today they can get all of this information it's getting pushed to people they see it in their facebook feed they see it on their social media and they're getting coached whether they know that or not by a lot of financial professionals that are have more access to information than they do. In 1995, if the market went down 20%, the only access to information that was really readily available, the internet was around, but as I'll tell you, because you asked the internet was around when I got married, the only access was really the newspaper. So unless you were buying a dozen newspapers, you were just getting one point of view. So if you pulled up the Gazette and that point of view is stock markets, you know, it's the end of the world, stock market's bad. What would your initial reaction be? Sell. It must be. Nobody's coaching you. There's no financial education. If you think about what our show does, it's financial education. We're trying to educate people how to be better investors and create more more net worth in their life. So I think that's the other reason people aren't giving up is they have this belief that based on past experiences, the market will probably go higher in the future. And that, that's a good thing. And I've also, and the, I don't know that this would be different because I, you know, in the mid nineties, I was 10 years old, but I know a lot of young people I've got, I've actually gotten this question a lot this year. So if I can say, if I can invest more, I should be doing that now. Right. Because the market's down. So I also think in, in young people, it's not young people don't have a lot of money to invest, but, um, I think that's also, I think that goes to what you're saying, where there's more access to good financial education, where people, they may not know what they should go buy, right? That's a different conversation, but they at least kind of know the basic thing of, well, my, I'm buying lower in my 401k. That's a good thing. Maybe I should increase my contribution, or maybe I should just open a brokerage account and put some money in. I think more of that goes on now too, which I think is a credit to 
um, our industry and the effort people make to educate people. And it's also credit to individual investors for taking time to learn enough to learn to at least understand that side of it. So you know what this made me think about? I don't know if you watched this, but last night was the first episode of Madoff on Netflix. Did it Ma- just come out last night? Yeah. Okay. So, I just thought I stumbled across. To, I actually watched the first, I watched two episodes. Yeah. So night. on Sunday, I I saw it on Netflix being advertised and I clicked it. And it was just the trailer. I'm like, oh, this isn't out yet. And then last night was the first episode. So I'm sitting huh. there with my wife and they talk about Black Monday in October and the market went down 25%. And my wife goes, well, that's like similar to happen to this year, right? I go, no. The market went down 25% in a day. Yeah, that didn't happen. That didn't this happen year. this year. That we didn't a, even go down twenty five percent for the year. Scary event. I, I think people don't even realize how scary that is. Could you imagine if you checked your account balance today? Because you check it every day, and you woke up tomorrow and went from one hundred to seventy five thousand. You would call the office and think your money's missing. Did someone take money something, out of my account? Something fraudulent had to happen. Right. Yeah. But what I think is. You know, as we talk about that show, and we, we, we mentioned this before we got on air. What Madoff did was of epic proportion. Oh, it's unbelievable. I mean, I can't even believe. And, you know, you think about what he did. He had, and for those of the people who haven't actually watched it, I think you should watch it. My wife is not really into finance. She was into the show for 51 minutes. The last six minutes she started to, to phase out, but we were actually pausing the show because she was asking me questions about how he got away with this. But what I, the, and I'm just talking about the first episode, but what I, I thought was really wild about it was in, I don't remember the year, but it was the year he bought his place in his vacation place in Mantucket. Maybe it was, and you know, he was doing really well financially and he was doing well financially because of his legitimate trading business. Yeah, he he, he was very successful. He, he did, Here's the it's crazy cuz he's like legitimately successful, but he's also like the biggest fraud in the history of Wall Street. He had two lives. He's both. Yeah. And and he and my wife goes, "Well, why did he, you know, why did he run the Ponzi scheme?" I said, "Because he couldn't unwind it." She goes, and she goes, what do you mean? I said, well, once you start it, you can't stop. And the only way to keep it going is to get bigger. He was just able to get, keep it going longer. And because he just got massive with it. And if you think about how he built all that credibility, Elias, it was on black Monday when he was the only, only market maker accepting trades. No one else is answering the phone. So everybody looked at him as the person who, Hey, he's legitimate. He's take his legitimate. This is his legitimate side of the business, not his advisory business, his legitimate side. He was the only one taking trades. So everybody looked at him on wall street. Hey, look, this is the guy. Let him take the money. I mean, it is, if you haven't watched it, people should watch it because I, I think that you know, my takeaway from it is he would have been highly successful and wealthy without this Ponzi scheme. He just didn't know how to shut it down. It it spiraled out of control on its own. Okay, and here's one thing, and I forgot to look. So did anyone else get in trouble 
Or is he the only person that... I think he claimed no one else was involved. And we haven't got to that point yet because I only did episode one. But my, you know what my wife said? She has pretty good intuition. She goes, there's no way the wife didn't know. Because right. so the here, wife's dad was in the accounting business. Yep. She was doing the books for the company. And all through it, she was an educated female. Like she went to college when no females were going to college. My wife goes, there's no way she didn't know. She's too smart. And I guess... So there ha- there's no way he did it. Just speculation on first episode. He did not do this by himself. So how, however else, like if no one else got in trouble, that's a, that is an incredible, incredible feat. And from the, uh, like from the little bit of deposition, deposition interviews they show, he doesn't seem to like portray any remorse or anything. And he, I almost feel like he just, he, I think he justified it to himself because through greed, right? I think in his mind, he was greedy, but so are all, so are these other people participating. Their level of knowledge to what he was doing is all speculation. But because I, I remember one comment he made, I thought was interesting. Well, all these other people were greedy too. Everyone in the business is greedy. I was thinking, well, if, I get how you, that's like your defense mechanism. Well, everyone's greedy, but not every greedy person is a fraud and just downright steals money from people. So, but I guess if you, if you kind of end up and I don't feel bad for him, but I think he almost kind of got trapped in this second illegitimate business, right? Like it started as one thing and then just kind of snowballed on him and then he's trapped in it. Well, if you live, he got away with it for what, 30, 40 years. So I guess at some point that's just your life. So that's your normal, right? Like at the beginning of it, he's probably thinking, I can't believe I'm doing this. But at some point, you're not going to think about that all the time. You just have to do it and get it done because it's the only thing keeping you out of prison. Dude, what's amazing? Yeah. This should, he was never registered. He actually never registered as an investment advisor. Which I don't know how, how, how the, is that even possible? And not only that, that, that firm, what was the name? It was like, uh, there was a firm involved that he was, was a feeder fund of his that, that went, went out of business and all the clients came from that business to his fund and they were investigated by the sec and the sec said, we found no wrongdoing on, you know, the part of Madoff. Other but than, he still wasn't registered. Other than he's pooling people's run, money and running an unregistered mutual fund or hedge fund, whatever you want to call he's it. He's re- running an unregistered company. How how does that happen? Isn't that the first thing you do? And, you know, in their fairness, what was that, back in the 80s? You know, today that wouldn't happen because no. you could go right out to FINRA Broker Check or the IARD, Investment Advisor, website and look up everybody's registration, whether they're current or not. Where back then, I mean, in the 80s, internet wasn't really here. Hard to... Right, and that that's the other thing that's fascinating about it is not only was he super successful legitimately, but a fraud and super successful at being a fraud, but he also had like the perfect storm of circumstances to do it because he wouldn't... The internet was young, right? So you none of your clients had internet access. access to their accounts no one could actually see the trades it would be so what he did would i would hope would be impossible today it'd be much harder 
to do today it's with probably internet not access and it instant just... trades and how they're reconciled and settlement being in two days. Where and I didn't even like back when he started settlement on a stock trade was like two weeks or something. He was the first person to be able to get it done in three days. He, I don't right. know if you caught that. He was the pioneer yes. of electronic trading or using the, I shouldn't say electronic, but using the computer for settlement. So when People I was couldn't figure out how he could settle it in three days. I was fascinated by them making the point of how he was the first person to settle stock trades in three days. And I'm like, well, people would get upset if you told them, yeah, because the it's two business days now for settlement. But that's just the norm that I've always known. I never, it never even occurred to me that, well, at some point it wasn't two days. So I thought that was fascinating. Elias, the other thing I thought was insightful and interesting is when he started out trading, you know, his his father-in-law had funneled him like 15 or 20 clients. He's basically running an unregistered mutual fund. But his trading company and investment advisory company started on pink sheets. And for people that don't know what pink sheets are, it's basically companies that can't get listed on exchange. It's called the over, it was called the over-the-counter market. And nobody really knows the price of these things. And that's how he started. So he started in the most obscure area where the prices weren't really known. They were just set between, hey, I own XYZ company. I'll sell it to for you for X. There was no market for it. They're making the market. Which that's a whole nother thing because you're just doing trades based on, at that time, he's calling you on the phone, brokering these trades and facilitating all the price. There's no way to verify it. There's no way to... Does Let's that call it what make, it does is. It have, does that even make sense? Like, I just can't, you know, the way we do business now, I can't picture calling someone, hey, do you want to buy 200 shares of this company you never heard of at this price and them agreeing to it? Well, guess what? We can't even trade those. <laughs> well, right, <laughs> right. But it's so, I don't know. It's It makes me think of two movies. Okay. Wolf of Wall Street and Boiler Room. Like, he was yeah. selling garbage to people. Before the Ponzi scheme. That's what made it all happen. If you think about it, it all started because he was selling these obscure companies. If you, if you go back and watch it, he had 30000 in this like mutual fund, unregistered mutual fund. And he lost all the client's monies. I think it was 1976, something happened, and it washed it all out. So we went and borrowed 30000 from his father-in-law to pay these investors back. So that's how the Ponzi scheme started. I actually thought the... 30, when they were starting that segment, I'm like, how much money did he have? And it's 30,000, which was a lot more in 1976 and it is now, but still. And I was thinking, man, he's really lucky. It was only 30,000 that he had to cover, but right. That was small. Turned into 50 billion. 30,000 to 50 billion. So if you haven't watched it, go watch it. It's a great show, but it just makes me think too about, you know, we, we talked about readiness of information. Readiness of information, the ability to get information 30 years ago, 40 years ago is so much different today. And I actually believe that's why people are better investors today because they can get the information. The trading's transparent. They can go get educated versus having to buy a book or read 12 different newspapers. Back then, that was the only way. And then you just blindly took the advice of someone like Bernie Madoff without ever verifying what you're really doing. Right, just because... And he had a lot of things going for him, hanging out in the right crowds, being successful on Wall Street. I mean, there's a lot of things about him that 
Of course you're going to trust him. And here's what happens when you get to that level. Investors believe that the previous investors have done their due diligence. So it's okay for them to do it without doing to, to invest without doing due diligence. Yeah. Other people are doing it. If Kevin O'Leary's doing it, he had to have done his due due his due diligence. So it's safe now. Clearly that's not the case. It's why you think about the investments we utilize in our managed accounts. We're using very large brand companies who've been around for a long time because there's a level of confidence that these companies aren't going anywhere. I don't need to list the names, but if most people just start to think of the companies that come to mind when they think about investing, those are the companies we're going to use. We're not using obscure in the dark stuff that, you know, people don't feel good about because we don't know who's done the due diligence. So I know with that said, I'm, I'm looking forward to 2023. I hope that we have a significantly calmer year. Do I think that's going to happen? Probably not, but it'd be nice to have a nice steady growth year, calm the fears of people. Hopefully, you know, we, we don't see massive inflation, although I, I still think it's here. I, my grocery bill's not going down. I noticed I was paying $6 for eggs the other day. Um, Jonas had spray butter inflation. I'm going to start tracking egg inflation the egg the dozen yeah. egg inflation index someday it might get to seventeen dollars and twenty cents per it dozen could. eggs it could so i you know i think um which i'm happy looking back at this year and thinking about this next year 2023 i'm happy kind of our message has been expect this to last a long time Cause think about like the boat we'd be in if we were telling people oh this is going to be short term i think so i think we've done a good job setting the expectations and you know it's a it's just like your disney world trip that story that you tell if you set the expectation that it's going to be hard still for the next 12 months and we have a positive year in the market this year you're gonna you're just gonna think oh great that worked out better than i thought which is better than the opposite thinking oh man that really that that stunk I, I was expecting I, better. I'll be honest. I'm proud of retail investors and how they've handled this because I think it's actually worse than what we think for people, especially the people who thought they had safe investments and then, you know, they're down 12, 13, 14% of their bond fund or whatever bond fund they own. So with that said, I want to thank everybody for listening. I'm looking forward to 2023 and I hope everybody keeps uh, tuning in. Securities and advisory services offered through LPL Financial, a registered investment advisor, member FINRA SIPC. The opinions voiced in this show are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine which investments may be appropriate for you, consult with your attorney, accountant, and financial advisor or tax advisor prior to investing. All performance referenced is historical and is not a guarantee of future results. All indices are unmanaged and cannot be invested into directly. Premier Investments of Iowa Incorporated and LPL Financial do not provide tax advice. Please consult your tax professional.